The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everybody. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. One of the avenues that we have explored on this program somewhat extensively is the need to transmit the message of archaeology to a more general audience and uh, to also integrate contemporary trends in social media and uh, just media generally as a mechanism of spreading the word, as it were, and for sort of streamlining archaeological and historical messages to the general population and to people who express strong interests in these types of things. Um, One of the elements and one of the media outlets that has really sort of self-promoted archaeology and history recently is the History Channel and a variety of different programs that have aired on the History Channel and some related programs cable broadcasting networks as well, a program that has been widely discussed and received a a large amount of publicity recently is a three-part series called The Sons of Liberty, which is the story of the early days of the American Revolution. And I am very pleased to welcome the developers and writers of that program to our airwaves today. Um, Zach Herman is a development executive of Stephen David Entertainment. He joined that company in 2013, and he's written on a number of projects, including the Emmy-nominated program, The World Wars, and, as I mentioned previously, Sons of Liberty. He spent three years working at Don Buckwald & Associates. His short film, Elijah the Prophet, was the winner of the 2010-11 Canadian Short Screenplay Competition, a film that has screened at numerous festivals around the world. Uh, Zach, welcome to the program. Thank you. 
Jordan Rosenblum is also a development executive and is a writer and a developer and has worked on a number of Stephen David Entertainment productions, including the Emmy-nominated World Wars Again and Sons of Liberty. Before joining that uh, company, he worked in development at Left Right TV and received his Master in Fine Arts and Screenwriting from the American Film Institute. While at, at that institute, he worked in the writer's room at the very well-known production called Mad Men. His AFI thesis film, Paste, has screened at various film festivals as well. And welcome to you, Jordan, as well. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So you guys, as we discussed earlier, have very similar career trajectories, and I have noticed that in a lot of the cable networks, um, the people who do the actual development and do the writing are very, very young. I mean, I'm not going to ask you how old you are, but you're obviously very young. Do you have, did you have similar backgrounds? Uh, Zach, what is, what is your educational background, and how did you get into the business? Sure. Um, well, uh, actually, Jordan and I, our backgrounds are a little different, as similar as our kind of uh, trajectories are on paper. Um, I actually started uh, with a background in journalism. Uh, I was a journalism student and kind of worked a little bit in entertainment journalism, um, mostly in music. Um, but that doesn't really pay the bills. So, um, you know, I always loved film and TV and, uh, you know, after working at a talent agency for a number of years, um, you know, Stephen David, who's the, uh, you know, uh, president and, uh, you know, executive producer at Stephen David Entertainment, you know, uh, also, you know, the original, uh, pitch, you know, developed Sons of Liberty from, you know, original conception all the way through, you know, uh, he and Dave White were lead writers on the show. Um, you know, he's kind of really loves giving kind of young people who, you know, can prove themselves in this industry a chance and kind of where, how I ended up where I am now. And Jordan, your background? Um, hi. Yeah. So as Zach said, my background's a little bit different. I was a senior at the University of Pennsylvania who was planning on going to law school when I took a screenwriting class and just kind of fell in love with the craft and kind of did a career 180 at that point. I was, as I said, I was about to go to law school. I kind of called my mom and told her, uh, I don't think I can do this anymore because I fell in love with screenwriting. And I wrote my first feature film script and used that to get into AFI, where, as you said, I got my master's in screenwriting while also interned in the writer's room at Mad Men. And then after I graduated from AFI, I moved back to New York from L.A. and looked for any job writing that I could find. And I met with Stephen David, who, Zach said, conceived and you know was the lead lead writer of this show and we really hit it off and my first job uh working for Stephen David was writing on the world wars and it went really well so I've been here ever since that's really interesting i just as an aside it's it's similar to the sorts of backgrounds that uh, initiated some of the early american tv comedy series back in the 50s when woody allen and and his cohorts basically came from similar backgrounds and developed into writers of comedy programs way back in the 50s and 60s i think this is sort of a contemporary take on that same sort of thing but that's a topic for another day mm-hmm. um 
let me ask you both. You said you had mentioned that Stephen David himself uh, actually did he actually write or and come up with the idea of Sons of Liberty? Um, yeah, so the idea for the show, actually, it's a story that he loves to tell. It's his original idea. He was actually exercising on the elliptical, and he heard this song, Paint in Black by the Rolling Stones. And he was thinking about the turbulent times of the 1960s and if it had any really relation to the 1760s. So he called up the development team at Stephen David Entertainment and asked if there was really anything about the Revolutionary War that had to do with teen angst. And we came up with the Sons of Liberty story and kind of pitched it to him and from, and fell in love with it. Uh, and, yeah, so he was the the lead writer on it. So as, as I said, Zach and I kind of took the idea and ran with it and did all the research and developed the show, wrote outlines, wrote early drafts of the scripts, working alongside and with Stephen. And then once we got into production, Stephen kind of took the lead on the show itself, uh, being on set and doing all the rewrites and just being the main driving creative force. So, Jordan, this was really your brainchild. Between the two of you, you guys sort of came up with this idea, correct? Uh, well, with Stephen and, and Dave White, who's also the, the main writer, kind of the four of us were all in it from the very beginning. Uh, the show is fascinating, um, and we'll get into several details as, as we talk about it, but uh, this is a very unique period. I mean, you're talking about the early days of the American Revolution and where it was hatched really in, in, in the general Boston area, and the uh, story really begins with and centers on Samuel Adams and John Hancock, which is a little unusual because that's not necessarily an association that even a lot of uh, experts make with, uh, with one of the uh, nascent elements of the American Revolution, although they were clearly very involved in it, as you had indicated. Um, and in that connection, I would just start out with your portrayal of Sam Adams as a person who had absolutely nothing in terms of the way he was depicted in your program with what I had learned in history class and what I have subsequently looked up and researched about. You have him sort of as a roguish figure who uh, was very much sort of on the radical end of the American political spectrum at that time, which would have been in the late 1760s and early 1770s. I'm not sure that that's entirely accurate, but it certainly fits nicely into your reconstruction. And John Hancock, in, in a sense, as you've depicted him, sort of a bumbling businessman who's really uh, just trying to squeak out his living uh, as, as a sophisticated, quasi-sophisticated and uh, well-heeled businessman. Again, not necessarily matching what the historians would necessarily say would be accurate. What, are, what is, uh, Zach, let's start with you. How did you uh, have these characters? How did you design these characters? And how did you uh, account for the fact that they don't exactly match up with the historical record? Right. Well, I mean, you know, as we said, the whole development team kind of really dug in on the research. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, um, we were very adamant, and this was kind of, you know, inherent in Stephen's original pitch, you know, this whole kind of angsty or rebellious idea. I think 
what you kind of lose um, in a lot of the history books and, you know, it actually has been kind of repeated in more recent kind of more revisionist history uh, texts, you kind of lose the, the overall headiness, the drama of the time, you know, because it tends to get reduced to stodgy wigs and general assemblies, which, hey, there, there was a lot of that. That was a a very much a driving force in the revolution, but you know, the Sons of Liberty were a very real group that were, you know, uh, they were true revolutionaries. They were, you know, violent at times, and I think it's kind of preserving the greater truth of that that kind of led to these characterizations. And you know, there are, you know, we, it, of course, you know, there's a lot of people have hit on Sam Adams is a little bit younger in our version, but. You know, he was kind of at the forefront and kind of ahead of his time in uh, in terms of a uh, revolution, as was John Hancock. Um, and they really were singled out by the British as, you know, two people who were, you know, going to hang on the eve of the Battle of Lexington for, for what they had done. So, um, yes, you know, is every little characterization true to history? You know, we make sacrifices in the, you know, uh, greater quest for producing in entertaining dramatic television, but I think the the core, the kernel of it all, really does hold up. I, I think you're probably right, and I, you know, it's uh, certainly uh, po- I, I would I would say literary and cinematic license to make these current characters look as vibrant as you can make them, and also to make them resonate with a contemporary audience, which I think personally is very, very important so that they can relate to uh, people who don't necessarily have any any significant scholarly background on that. But as you said very, very accurately, I think uh, these were revolutionaries and they were very, very staunch and very, very supportive of a certain way of thinking. Uh, Jordan, let me ask you a little bit about the Hancock character who originally seems like a guy who just wants to survive. He has inherited his father's uh, business. He's not especially keen as a businessman. He knows how to uh, he knows how to run the operation, but you sort of depict him as basically an opportunist who goes with whichever way the wind flows, wind blows, and uh, eventually he realizes that the British ultimately are, will, want, will will squash him no matter what it takes if uh, if the uh, independence movement is supposed to be stifled. And how did you how did you structure him, and what kind of research did you do on on John Hancock? Sure. Uh, well, I'd certainly agree with your your characterization of Hancock as we kind of depict him in our series. But what really drew us to him as a character was, uh, you're right, we just found it fascinating that, you know, here you have the, who at the time was the wealthiest single citizen in Boston, and he'd inherited his uncle's, you know, massive shipping empire. And what would draw him to a revolution where he really, as the wealthiest person, had the most to lose? And uh, if you look at it, he really did, because the British, you know, one of the first things they do when the revolution starts in Boston is they take control of the ports, which was uh, greatly devastating to, to Hancock's shipping empire. So that really was what first made us interested in him as a character and what brought him into this revolution where he did have so much to lose. 
And the dynamics between Hancock and Adams uh, historically is known, and I think you pretty much have that one nailed. Uh, again, I think there's an exaggeration. I mean, this rogue figure of Samuel Adams, that's the one I had a little bit of difficulty with, but mm -hmm. you had to make that work, and, and I think the way you did it is really quite nice, and I, even though it, that's probably the biggest stretch that I can see. The other thing that I was very impressed with was that you made some of the more key figures in the revolution. Um, you brought them into the picture, and uh, you made and identified some of their key characteristics, even though they, in your segment, in your segment, and at that point in history, they were minor figures. Benjamin Fra Franklin, as you depicted him, you brought out all the most important characteristics of this guy, even though for the three uh, episodes that you guys had, he was just sort of a marginal character. The same thing with Washington. But you identified some of the elements that made these people the more important people in the revolution, certainly showing uh, Franklin as a, shall we say, a very off-color kind of guy <laughs> who, um, who enjoyed life very much and had it wielded a tremendous amount of influence and as you you accurately depicted i mean his importance was as a diplomat and uh keeping this thing together and washington uh, again minor in your story but you previewed his future role very very accurately and very very beautifully and i thought that was really important because a lot of people don't know what the chronology of these events are and uh, you know they know george washington was important but at this particular point he was just starting to emerge and i thought that was marvelous did you do that deliberately um yeah you know what we what we had in the show is we only had really 6 hours uh to a 6 hour narrative to tell 10 years of history so what we really did is look at these characters, and you're right, and a character like Benjamin Franklin or George Washington, who, you know, so iconic and plays such a pivotal role, we really did have to single, single out those traits that we wanted to dramatize that could show them you know, uh, as, as they were in the shortest amount of time that we had. Yeah, and, I think one of the great yeah, things ahead. Stephen has kind of taught us since we, you know, started writing, you know, here is uh, when you have such a limited amount of time and television is such a character-driven medium, um, you really have to filter, especially when you're dealing with vast, you know, swaths of complicated history, you have to really use your characters, your main characters as the POV into it. So, you know, it's not just a question of what did Ben Franklin and George Washington do that's significant, it's a question of how how does it relate to our main characters, Samuel Adams, John Hancock, John Adams, Joseph Warren? And I think that kind of starts to dictate the filter that you use of how much of these, you know, people who are very, very important and are huge, huge historical figures, um, you know, when do you use them? How do you use them? And I think it kind of starts to, once you use that filter, it, it kind of layers in much more naturally. And I want to get back into that depiction and to the general reconstructions that you guys have fashioned. And we will be back with this very fascinating discussion on the genesis of the series, The Sons of Liberty, uh, right after these words. Stay tuned.
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Tune in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's practical, positive solutions for a happy, empowered, and successful life. Families today face unique challenges. Marriage, parenting, and family forms have changed a lot in the last century. Family Matters with Dr. Virginia Collin will focus on building and maintaining healthy family relationships. We will discuss marriage, divorce, family mediation, parenting, lifestyles, and mental health, all kinds of family matters. Our show will feature guest experts and your participation, too. You can listen to Family Matters live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Zach Herman and Jordan Rosenblum are the developers and writers of the very well-reviewed and very popularly received uh, miniseries on the History Channel called The Sons of Liberty. Um, By the way, uh, just out of curiosity, where did you get the name The Sons of Liberty? Uh, Jordan. Oh, sure. Uh, So this was actually the name of an actual group that existed at the time. Uh, It was this kind of underground group of revolutionaries who were working against the British. So we we took the name from that. Okay. Uh, We were talking in the break about the reconstructions and the staging. And uh, you guys are not old enough to remember this, but about 30, 40 years ago when when, uh, there was a spate of movies about the revolution and the American Revolution, obviously, was such a critical, critical interval in American history. And there really was not that much attention paid 
to the actual reconstructions of the day-to-day environments and landscapes and cityscapes that uh, the the principal characters uh, lived in. And, of course, the point in movies in those days, very often in black and white sets and some of the early color sets, was to depict depict the traditional message of uh, the emergence of the liberty and independence movements. But in the past 20 years, certainly with the advent of cable television, the reconstructions are very, very critical. And as archaeologists, and and, uh, a lot of our audience is uh, composed of professional archaeologists, there is so much attention paid to the material culture and to the, the, as I said before, the landscapes and the cityscapes. And the ones that you guys have depicted seem to be so very well researched um they seem to be incredibly accurate um and i want to know how you guys went about finding that information getting the background to it who you consulted with uh, jordan you want to take that one yeah sure um so when we were you know researching the scripts at the very beginning we zach and i and dave and steven did a tremendous tremendous amount of research into the time period and into all of the iconic moments we know we wanted to depict and that would make it into the show like the boston tea party the boston massacre battle of bunker hill lexington concord we did uh, you know we had pages and pages and pages of research and we were looking at them as we wrote the script with an eye towards, you know, what we could actually shoot. And it was a goal of ours also to kind of depict these iconic events in ways that they really haven't been shown before, because there is this, I think, uh, kind of way that we like to remember these iconic events in uh and paint them in a different, you know, more generous light than they actually happened. And we wanted to see the kind of gritty reality behind that. And in addition to all the research, we just had an amazing, amazing production team on set who were able to recreate everything that we imagine in the script as it actually was. So really the credit for the sets and the accuracy of the cityscapes and all that goes to our production team, our production designer, you know, the amazing costumes from our costume designer, the locations department who scouted these locations. You know, something we we just mentioned was that this entire series was shot in Romania. So we had an amazing location team that was able to find places in Romania that could serve as, you know, Boston or Philadelphia. So really, the um, goes. Zach, let me ask you this. What about actually consulting with, and did you consult with any experts on the dress, on the sets, on the layout of the, the urban settings, the streets, the neighborhoods, the pubs, and a lot of activity obviously occurred in the pubs and bars, which we know is certainly a fact historically. Did you do that? Did you consult with a team of people, or was it, uh, was it just sort of a collective effort here? I mean, it really was a collective effort. Um, on on the writing side of it, we kind of did our own research, and I think, you know, like Jordan said, what was key was just really hiring, you know, some of the best, you know, production people in the business, you know, amazing production designers, you know, uh, costume uh, designers, uh, camera crew, you know, people who really went off and dug in on their own and kind of really, you know, I mean, the pre-production booklets were, you know, my mind was blown when I saw that for the first time, the amount of work that went into, you know, the research booklet and then the sketches they did to 
kind of reconstruct colonial Boston. So, I mean, it really does fall on the individual crew members who just really kind of embrace this fully and just dug in on the research to make this, you know, look, you know, 100% right. Right. Uh yeah, as Zach was saying, we we were on set in Romania while this was shooting, and when we arrived, they reconstructed, you know, the there's the main set, which was the Boston streets, uh, all the stores, and, and you know, the, the bar where Sam Adams hides out. And we arrived on set, and we're just blown away. It, it really did look like Colonial Boston, and you're walking through these streets feeling like you're there. Whose decision was it to film it in Romania? And and be, before you even get into that, let me just ask you this: Once what I, I think a lot of people are interested in this as well. The, you there there was an idea that germinated from you and and from from Zach Jordan and obviously Stephen Davis, and then. Do, did he make a decision, it's his company, that he was going to go ahead with it, and then you d went through the nuts and bolts of trying to find a location? Is that how it worked? Yeah, pretty. that's pretty much right. Um, I mean, you know, when you're in writing, you... You know, you try to keep a certain amount of reality in terms of production in mind in the back of your head. And I think, to be honest, you know, you know, Stephen, Dave, Jordan, myself, there were a lot of things in that script that were like, I don't know how we're going to do this. Um, but once it was written to the page, you know, it really did become about, okay, well, where can we really do this? And, you know, first we did look at a lot of places, you know, uh, that, that had pre-existing colonial structures. But I think it became clear that we really needed to go somewhere where we could just build everything, where we had, you know, just the, the ability to, to build colonial Boston in a studio rather than try to you know, use whatever pre-existing colonial structures we could, which, of course, there are a lot of restrictions on what you can and can't do around those historic buildings. Right. Uh, there's and, no you, question. You know, there's no question. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But mm -hmm. my, my question, I guess, would be if, if I were um, just sort of left to my own devices, and I'm not, and I don't know very much about making films like this, but certainly going to Eastern Europe sounds like it's probably a very economically positive way to go about it, but just in terms of trying to get access to landscapes, I would think that some abandoned locations, possibly in New England or even Canada, might not be a bad idea for, uh, you know, just keeping it very close to home and, and, and not incurring expenses of, of transatlantic travel, et cetera, et cetera. What, uh, what do you know about that? Um, you know, I think you know, ideally this we would have loved to shoot this stateside, but it also has to do with you know the realities of the budget. And this was a co-production done in association with A and E Studios, which produces other shows such as Vikings, which they do a lot of the shooting for in Romania. So they have an established production presence there. And uh, so when we were doing it in association with them, you know, they have a, a whole community there. They have a team of filmmakers they use. They have a relationship with the community. So it was just easy to continue the process there. I see. Okay, so there is an infrastructure in place for 
producing and uh, essentially executing these types of films because they, there is an existing infrastructure in place. So that makes sense. Now, what about extras and people like that? Are you getting people from the States or are you lo using local population? Because you do have crowd scenes, et cetera. So how, how does that work? <laughs> yeah, I, the vast majority of the crowd scenes, the people who you see on the show who do not speak are not American. They are Romanian. And I would say a number of them probably do not speak English. Yeah, that, that, and that's always been, you know, if you look at the history of film, in the 60s, actually, they made movies where uh, the primary characters talked in their native languages, and they didn't really understand each other. But, you know, because of dubbing and because of that sort of thing, they made a lot of those cheesy westerns out in Italy uh, back in the 60s, and uh, it was the same kind of environment. So I guess uh, that continues to this day, I guess. Yes. Uh, another another thing you, you did a wonderful job with sounds and um, just just getting uh, just getting the uh, audio visuals so well executed. One of the things that that uh, I did have uh, an issue about and and a concern about, and, and and this is something that probably some scholarly folks would know a lot more about is you used basically contemporary language. I mean, the language that the early colonialists used was very British, and the phraseology was very British, and the accents were as well. And uh, in your production, you upgraded it. You made it uh, sort of conform to contemporary American English, replete with expletives and a variety of descriptors that... Uh, were not really historically accurate, nor would I argue in your behalf did they have to be because, uh, again, it circulated for a wider audience. Did you have any discussions about that sort of thing, Jordan? Uh, yeah, absolutely. That was the discussion we had up front at the very beginning when we were just beginning this process with the History Channel. And it all comes back to that you know, initial question of navigating history with reality and fact versus fiction in these, in these shows. You know, we were very, very clear up front that this wasn't a documentary. You know, a show like The World Wars that is a documentary, we have to be a little more cognizant of, of those historical accuracies. But on a show like this, we knew that what we were really trying to capture was the truth of, uh, you know, the spirit of the revolution and, and a way to make it kind of resonate with modern audiences we knew would be to kind of put it in this contemporary language. So it was a decision that was made up front that, you know, we wanted a, a present day audience to connect with these characters and a way that we thought could help do that is by putting into contemporary English instead of using the, you're right, much more British phrasing that was uh, typical back then. Uh, the other question that I did uh, want to raise here is, did you actually have a professional team of historic consultants that you uh, sort of went to when you had questions about these sorts of things? I know, obviously, you adapted it to a contemporary milieu in order to transmit the, uh, and res as you said, resonate with the American audience. But did you have hire a team of uh, historic consultants? Um, I mean, a lot of our production crew, I mean, uh, I don't think we specifically had historical consultants on staff, but, you know, for example, like uh, for the battle scenes and things like that, you know, our, our military advisors on set throughout production, I mean, these are people who know, you know, the history of, of military formations and practices, you know, and have studied it extensively. So, you know, even something like a battle, which, you know, you'd think 
off the top of your head, a battle is a battle is a battle, but uh, there's a very, very clear kind of procedure to it, especially back in colonial times. So, you know, a lot of our, our production team are experts in their respective fields, and a lot of that does fall on history. Well, that is, is, is really one of the main issues that I wanted to bring as a follow-up here because uh, one of the elements that they do teach you even in, uh, even way back when I went to school was that one of the reasons for the uh, colonial successes in many of the battles is that they fought essentially as uh, 18th century guerrilla fighters. Um, they did not f- form in, in uh, ranks as the British did, which is a traditional European mode of of military uh, operation, which is to simply march forward in a very, very organized, regimented way. Whoever gets shot gets shot, and then there's the next wave of advances, whereas the Americans uh, were basically a ragtag operation with basically having a foundation in guerrilla types of fighting. And obviously, that message came across very, very beautifully, even to the construction of the barricades that, that they set up and the ambushes that very frequently occurred and I think that was very very well executed down to the construction of uh, of the wood wooden defenses um, you you did have your consultants working with you on that I par- apparently right oh, absolutely yeah absolutely and again all credit for that goes to the, the production team that were on set kind of supervising the construction of those unbelievable sets what about the selection of the actors? Um, was there was there an open audition? Again, this is these are questions that a lot of people who are not familiar with uh, with Hollywoodiana or even cable uh, cable vision productions of historical uh, films and documentaries. How was that set up? Was that that was done here, uh, Jordan? Yes, that was that was done here stateside, and was done in conjunction with the History Channel. You know, us as a production company producing it, uh, along with the network, both put out uh, casting, you know, descriptions basically of these characters, and then based off that, uh, we made a list of you know people we would like to audition, and we reached out to the talent agencies, and they would submit their own list, and it was just a navigation between us and the talent agencies and the actors themselves, and the History Channel, and you know, we put a number of actors on tape, and we would sit and look at their performances and see if they really matched with the vision for the characters that we had in the script. And I have to also give credit to our casting team because they did an incredible job, kind of finding the actors who were the perfect people to play these characters. They really brought a dimension to the characters that you know you hope is in the script. But when when, when the actors actually say the lines, they can bring something else to it, and they they just did an amazing, amazing job. And we will be back with our final segment on the development and the emergence of this wonderful three-part series, The Sons of Liberty, with the development executives and writers for the program, Zach Herman and Jordan Rosenblum, after these words. Please stay tuned. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Are you experiencing a relationship or a relation slip? 
Without the carefully measured balance of spirit and ego, it might not be what you want it to be. On Relation Slips with Dr. Bobby Summer and Lori Lynn Mann, we'll explore relationships from two unique ends of the spectrum. In addition, we'll have amazing guests, both experts and celebrities, and we'll hear from you too. Relation Slips can be heard live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Shulden, Ryan. We are, are talking to a very uh, unique pair of young uh, individuals, development executives and writers for the very successful series Sons of Liberty that uh, aired in January on the History Channel. And uh, we were talking in the break about some other items that we wanted to discuss. And I told them sort of laughingly that I was going to blindside them, but it's going to be something that I'm sure they can provide a very interesting response to. Uh, Jordan, let me start with you. What was the hardest part of doing this filming and the preparation? And what are sort of the uh, unusual scenes and uh, items or issues that occurred that were unexpected and were difficult to or at least relatively difficult to deal with? Sure. Well, I can tell you up front that by far the biggest challenge in the developing and writing of these scripts was taking, you know, this incredible, incredibly fertile time period from 1765 through 1776 and really distilling that 11 years of history into a six-hour narrative, you know, with commercials even even less than that. So, and taking these iconic moments like the Battle of Bunker Hill or Boston Tea Party and and showing them in a way that really hasn't been done before because this really is kind of well-covered territory. And from a production standpoint, uh, you're right, it was, it was difficult definitely to, to shoot in Eastern Europe. And kind of a fun anecdote I can tell is that one day while we were shooting, something unexpected that happened was actually a tornado almost set down within eyesight of the shoot, and we all had to take refuge in uh, John Barrett's farm, actually, which was a constructed set. So for uh-huh. me, that would definitely be the most unexpected thing that happened during production. Uh, how long did it take to construct the sets? It must have taken days, didn't it, Zach? 
Yeah, the set construction, I'm trying to think um, that maybe they started. I mean, they did it far, far quicker than you could ever imagine. I mean, I guess they started shooting sometime shortly after Memorial Day. So, um, I mean, they got those sets up in I, definitely under two months. Um I mean, I think it may have been closer to a month. Uh, to be honest, I don't really recall, but I remember seeing sketches and almost immediately seeing pictures from set and just thinking, oh, my goodness, like, they, they did it, <laughs> and they did it fast. Uh, one, of, one of the things that you did mention, and this is intriguing, and, and, and I guess now I think a lot of people probably understand how uh, this uh, development of the production from the idea for the, the program all the way to its production and execution is because there is clearly infrastructure involved here. I mean, you guys as a production company integrated well with, with the History Channel and, and having, um, I'm assuming, is a, a group of set builders who have worked before together and having a location in Romania where I guess this is already, if not a well-oiled machine, they're certainly ready to do these things. And so that the pieces would fit together more smoothly than one would anticipate because it's been done before and it's already, there's a protocol for it. Is that correct, Zach? Yeah, that is correct. I mean, you know, uh, any production, especially one of this kind of massive scope, um, you know, it takes a village. Uh, and in this case, in Romania, sometimes a literal village. Um, but, uh, you know, it, you know, from, from pre-production to production to, you know, uh, you know, our wonderful editors in post-production, I mean, it really, really is a team effort. But, you know, I have to say that the hats off really do go to Stephen because, I mean, it started with him. He's there, you know, in Romania for the entire shoot. And then he's in the edit bay towards the end. I mean, he really stays involved because this is, you know, this is cool and exciting. And, you know, I think having that one person who's kind of guiding things, you know, all these many moving parts. I mean, that is what an executive producer is. But, you know, as a writer, you know, just knowing the material, being personally involved, it really does help to have that person, you know, who's got this great relationship with History Channel kind of guiding things along. And, you know, it, you know, it took many people, but wouldn't have happened without him. <laughs> no question. And I think one of one of the intriguing aspects of this, and and I'm an archaeologist, and uh, one of the reasons that we're doing this program is to spread the word of archaeology to a broader audience. I mean, we we're traditionally known professionally as as people who take a fascinating topic and are able to make it very very boring in many <laughs> cases because. As scholars and researchers, some of the nuts and bolts of these sorts of things can drift into uh, into very technical elements that a lot of people can't really appreciate. But what I'm noticing is that productions like yours, like the History Channel, generate so much enthusiasm among the lay public, and I wish that people in my profession had that ability to transmit this message to broader audiences, and you guys seem to do it very, very well. Do you guys have any feel right now as to how successful 
in commercial terms or in professional terms this program has been? Do you have any preliminary indications because it just aired uh, last month? Uh, Jordan, do you have any feel on that or do you have any um, responses or feedback? Sure. Uh, so we were very happy with the way the, the series performed. You know, we it reached over, I think the number was like four and a half million people. So it was clearly a lot of people watching and it was a greater turnout than, you know, we, we could have hoped for. Uh, Zach, any comments yeah. on that? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, obviously the, you know, the ratings were, you know, we were really happy with that. But I mean, also just kind of anecdotally, when you were kind of looking at the, the outpouring in social media, um, you know, on Twitter, on Facebook, I mean, it's really, it was really astounding to see how, how into it people really get. Um, and it was heartening because, you know, um, we know we take our liberties and we are kind of, Distilling this, you know, uh, very scholarly history to a much more yeah, kind of palatable, right. wider audience. But it's, you know, we're history geeks at heart, and you know, to see people get excited about the founding fathers like this, I mean, that's cool. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah, a lot of made is that a lot is made of that, and you know, in the scholarly research, which again. Uh, I hate to say it, a lot of it is very dry. I mean, a lot of attention has been turned to the Founding Fathers, certainly in the past 20 years, and, and doing some very, very serious state-of-the-art research. Um, and, and, and obviously, public television has released a number of programs that uh, try to stay true to the history. And, of course, they also have to uh, recalibrate that in a way that it would resonate with a broader public. Let me get back to one of the questions that I wanted to ask further, um, and, and let me give this one to you, Zach. What, was there anything that you thought would flow well that turned out to be a lot more difficult than it, it turned out actually to be? Any surprises there? Um, I mean, I think, I don't know that it was necessarily a surprise, but I think one of the most difficult things, I think, at the writing stage was really kind of showing this natural evolution, this, uh, you know, kind of coming from a, a, an emotional kind of character place, uh, showing that evolution towards rebellion, from, from rebellion to independence, basically, that, you know, what kind of maybe started as more selfish economic terms, and that does really have a basis in history, kind of evolves into something emotional that evolves into something nationalistic and by then you're at the end of night three and we're signing the Declaration of Independence. And I think kind of imprinting that and doing it through our main characters and making that feel natural uh, to the story, um, that wasn't easy. I mean, that's kind of the hardest thing that we do in development on any show is taking these kind of, you know, big historical topics that have all these kind of intricacies and kind of making it relatable and human and, and told through characters. It's yeah, and Zach, you too. You feel the same way. They both feel the same way about that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for us, you know, always at the the beginning of the shows when we're first conceiving them and developing them, it really is about character first. You know, like we have these events we know we're depicting, but it's really about what does it mean for our protagonists, for our main characters, and how can we dramatize that in an interesting way. 
And, you know, at the heart, we're all storytellers here. And, and really what it comes down to is these stories are, are really unbelievable. And we just, you know, are, are happy to be able to share them in the world and with the small way that we could. Uh, and again, I, I think it worked out really, really very, very beautifully, and I'm sure you'll be getting a lot of feedback on that. Uh, one of the things that, that I really like was the sound, the sounds in the background. Now, for some reason, any time one of these cable shows does uh, a historical reconstruction, they're always neighing horses in the background, and it, it creates this uh, atmosphere that you never heard with the old movies, the neighing horses. I don't know why I always hear that. That. Is there there's something about that 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 resonates? I mean, why is that always in there in the movies? Oh, I think it's, it, it has a lot to do with building atmosphere in the world. Um, you know, our, our uh, company SVP of programming, Tim Kelly, um, you know, started here as you know lead editor, and um, you know he's an Emmy winning you know sound editor as well. So um, I think there definitely is a very close attention to. Sound. I mean, you know, if if you talk to any any you know really good sound editor, they understand that it's it's not just filling out space. It's it's a way of storytelling. It's a way of kind of immersing your audience, and you know, it's just as important as you know you know cinematography. That if if you can shape the world through sound, then you can really bring an audience in. Sir, anything that you and again, and I, I always ask this um, when I'm uh, interviewing guests on program that have have uh, been involved in public presentations and reconstructions. Anything that was more difficult than you thought it would be? Anything that you would do differently? Were there any elements of this? And I'm talking mainly about the production phase um, that could have been improved upon, or or, or that became or that were a little more problematic or more logistically difficult than one might anticipate. Um, flying to Romania for <laughs> was uh, logistical. Actually, uh, and interestingly enough, I got bitten by a spider while I was there and had my leg infected on my flight back. So uh, I would definitely not do that in the future. Um, I would love to avoid that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I take I take it you've never been to Eastern Europe before. Um, I actually, uh, both Jordan and I separately have been to Hungary, right, Jordan? Uh, yes, that's right. But never Romania until uh, we went over for production. Right, but, but yeah, in terms of things we do differently, you know, you, we'd always love to have more money just so we can make everything look bigger. But I think that the production team really did an unbelievable job of kind of capturing everything that we wanted to show. As Zach said, you know, when we wrote these early drafts uh, with Stephen and Dave, it was like, oh, we don't really know if we, we can shoot a, a lot of this with the money that we have. But they really did an unbelievable job of, of bringing it to life and making it work. Yeah, I think uh, specifically in the in night one, I remember the the whole smuggling sequence, and you know, I remember yeah. seeing that first draft of the script with you know the camera goes underwater, you know, and we see lobster traps filled with Madeira wine. I was like, oh my goodness, that's that'll <laughs> never happen. But sure enough, you know, hats off to you know production and uh, the VFX company, Brainstorm Digital, who works on the Boardwalk Empire. I mean, it's all there and it looks fantastic. Oh, that was a magnificent... I was w- going to ask you about that. How did they do that one, the underwater stuff? I guess they've they've got experience doing that sort of thing. Um, I mean, that's... Uh, I think that's almost entirely VFX. That's yeah. 
Yeah, and a lot of a lot with with digital technology, a lot of those special effects are uh, enabled that we would never even conceived con- previously have conceived of how they do those things because they look so realistic and they look so wonderful, and it really looked like a high budget production. I don't know what it cost, but certainly the uh, the presentation and the clarity was uh, unbelievable. And it sort of has to be in this day and age. How long, uh, just one, a couple of other questions, how long were, were you in production? Uh, we were just there for about, uh, I'd say, like two and a half, three weeks. Um, I mean, the you know, uh, they were over there. I mean, I think the shoot schedule itself was over two months, and that's not including, you know, pre-production, set building, and, of course, you know, uh, post-production back here in, in New York. Um, so, I mean, this was, you know, again, it, it takes a village and it takes a lot of time, um, to, to do something of this incredible scope. Right. And I think from beginning to end, you know, from the first outlines of the script to delivering the final product, it's well over a year worth of work. And that was my other question. So it, it is a year worth of work to, to produce these six hours. And I imagine that the actual film had to be edited down very, very substantially because you squeeze this whole thing into six hours, right? Yes, that's absolutely right. A lot of, a lot of post-production. Was, was any of it filmed here in the States or no? No, it's uh, shot entirely, entirely uh, in, in and around Bucharest. Um, and in closing, I want to say that this is a wonderful, wonderful production. I think you guys did a, a magnificent job, and uh, hopefully uh, we can look forward to some more of your work on historical themes uh, without giving away any secrets. Uh, are there other ideas in the works here? Um, you know, we'd always love to to continue working on the story. We both love it so much. But uh, our company, Stephen David Entertainment, uh, we we do kind of concentrate on these historical dramas. We have two more of the the docu series in the vein of the World Wars coming out in the next few months. One of them's uh, for AMC called The Making of the Mob, about the story of the formation of the mafia in New York and Lucky Luciano and his rise and fall. And the other is a story we're doing for National Geographic called American Genius about uh, rivalries between inventors and how those rivalries kind of spurred some of the greatest inventions in our history. And that's a wonderful teaser to look forward to, and thank you for sharing that with us. And on that note, we're going to have to end this interview. I want to thank my very special guests, Zach Herman and Jordan Rosenblum, who are the development executives for the very successful series Sons of Liberty. Thanks very much, guys, and uh, we will look forward to your uh, production and writing exploits going forward. Thanks so much for being on the program. Thanks Thank so you. much for having us. And until next time, this is Joe Schuldenrein, and we will see you next week with another issue of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality in 21st Century Archaeology. Thanks so much for listening, and see you again. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.